There are a lot of restrictions across the world right now, thanks to new COVID variants. Bans on gatherings, on protests, on travel. But today, we're talking about a different ban in Egypt. A ban on music itself. You cannot really escape this sound. Then I could hear in the sound something that was going to be uh, growing, that was going to take over, and uh, that I felt was really fresh and that resonated with a pretty sizable portion of the Egyptian population. This sound, mahraganat, is a genre that comes from the word for festivals in Arabic. This is La by Sawarikh. And this music was divisive. One government official even called these artists cockroaches in the musical kitchen. But their popularity just kept skyrocketing until it suddenly came under threat after just one concert. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. This week, we're looking back at some of our favorite episodes. We first brought you this story in 2020 just as the pandemic was taking hold. Now that we've entered year two of the pandemic, many things have changed. But there is much that's still the same. Like a renewed ban, as of November 2021, on several artists who perform a highly popular, highly infectious type of music in Egypt. I'm talking with Mina Gerges, an Egyptian ethnomusicologist based in California. When he was living in Egypt up until 2017, he said the genre was inescapable and was even posing a challenge to the superstars of Egyptian pop. You will hear it on on boats on the Nile. If you are uh, walking anywhere by the Nile, most of these boats, they would have big woofers and speakers that get all the buildings on the Nile with their windows buzzing because of how loud this music is. You hear it in any microbus taking people, private transportation. You would, you would hear it in all the tuk-tuks, the rickshaws in Egypt, in all of the inner city neighborhoods. And I think you'd hear it on many people's car stereos and laptops and in coffee shops that you hear everywhere. I mean, I have to say that you're taking me back. I have a very vivid memory of dancing on a felucca, which is these boats on the Nile River in Cairo with friends. And they have these huge radio systems and a subwoofer. And as you're just gliding along the Nile, we're dancing to very loud music. There are twinkly lights on the outside of the boat. But at that time, and this is in the early 2000s, we were dancing along to Hamadou Diab. And I feel like an updated version of that, it sounds like you're saying, would be dancing to Mahraganat music. Exactly. I think, I think uh, Mahraganat music has replaced the music of Amri Dieb and all the other pop singers who were uh, kind of the de facto sound of Egypt uh, prior, to, prior to 2010. The de facto sound of Egypt over the past couple years could arguably have been the song Bint al-Giran. It didn't just top the charts in Egypt. It was the number two song in the world on the music streaming site SoundCloud. (laughs) 
I'm already dancing in my seat, and it's only been a couple of seconds of that song. Talk to me about the story behind that song. So, so this this is a love song the singer is singing about the daughter of his neighbors. That's an expression in Arabic for basically my neighbor that I'm in love with. I think it, 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 it has a bit of a the emotion of, you know, I want to be with you, but society is not maybe... Uh, letting us be together so I have to dream about you and please keep your window open for me and give us give us give us a possibility <laughs> but there was one lyric in particular about alcohol and hashish or marijuana that caused some controversy so on February 14 2020 the artists, Hassan Chakush and Omar Kamal, they're performing at this massive stadium in Cairo. There are tens of thousands of people in the audience, and they're not the only ones watching. The governing body of Egypt's musicians was too. So, so there's a musician syndicate that usually if you are a professional performer, you have to be a member of that syndicate in Egypt. And the head of the musician syndicate act as the, the, the czar of censorship. And they told Hassan Shakus, you cannot sing uh, these lyrics when you say hash and alcohol. And Hassan Shakus decided he's going to make another version of the song without these two words. And he said that they played the wrong, the old version, the wrong version. Because of that, the situation escalated from there and they decided they were going to literally outlaw all, all Maharganat or all of this style of music. So make people not able to, live, to, to perform live any, any song that has a Maharganat sound to it. The head of the music syndicate, Hani Shakir, said in a TV interview that none of the musicians would be able to perform, not even with a license. So Mina mentioned this phrase, the czar of censorship. The musician syndicate has always been like a professional union for performers. But recently, Mina says that it's taking on more of a surveillance role. It's not so much about cracking down the way Egypt has on activists or journalists, but on keeping a leash on the culture itself. I don't think before this episode that we're seeing right now, the the head of the musician syndicate had so much of a power over which songs are legal or which songs are illegal, what you can perform, what lyrics you can include or not. So this is definitely a new role and a changing landscape in terms of the censorship around music in Egypt. Wow. When the syndicate banned Maharaganat's music, they weren't just banning some underground genre. They were banning what had become one of the most popular genres of the last decade, as Mina explained. Maharaganat music, I would say, became clear to people as a new genre in uh, 2010. So that was right before the uprisings of 2011, the Arab Spring, and have nothing to do with 
the the Arab Spring, but it was happening at the same time. It came out of the informal housing settlements in uh, Cairo and many other cities in Egypt. An easy way to compare them would be hip hop in the United States. Or, you know, music in Brazil, like in favelas that came out of Brazil and other other parts of the world that is comparable. So young people that are pre-disenchanted with their situation and that are making music with very low tech. And most of the music is very daring and interesting rhythms that are bringing and recycling a lot of traditional Egyptian music, but in a new way that makes it a very specific genre. There's a lot of variety within the genre. But usually, most songs will have a few key features. They'll have traditional Arabic beats, and they'll usually be mashed up with sounds from more Western genres, like electronic music or grime or reggaeton. But maybe the most defining feature is that they have a lot of auto-tune. And as Mina said, it all started out very low budget. So. All you need to make a song is what? All you need to make a song is uh, talent and a singer <laughs> um, and maybe a fruity loop on your computer. It's a very simple software with, an, with the overuse of autotune. Most of these musicians or these singers started making these songs at home on their makeshift computers with uh, software that is probably hacked. They were not really meant to overtake pop music or become at the center of the music industry as they have become now. They never aspired to produce recordings that would sell and, and make, the, make their living that way. So this genre became popular, especially at weddings. And for people who have not had the privilege of going to an Egyptian wedding or a wedding in Egypt, and they don't know what that's like, can you describe what we should be picturing here? So this music came out of the shanty towns. So it is the sound of those inner city neighborhoods. And uh, most of the weddings where you would hear Maharaganat would be some of these places. You could hear Maharaganat music now in hotels and fancy places, in weddings and nightclubs. But in its, I would say, traditional setting, you would you would hear two singers, maybe with one guy on the laptop, and they are singing together back and forth. And you would have a lot of young guys dancing together, jumping up and down in a, a very raucous way. It's particularly seen as the music of young males, as opposed to kind of a couple kind of dance. So I'm going to play another famous song, El Abyala. And this one describes exactly what you're saying. In one of the concerts, there's a stage and there are several young men jumping up and down and singing on stage as the crowd of thousands sings along with them. So El Abiela is a song by Oka and Ortega. Oka and Ortega are 
two of the first originators of Maharaganat music. Most of their songs are known for being a little uh, nuanced, a little uh, daring, a little sexual. So this is a song about a guy sitting alone and then what they say is like he sees the girl comes down the street and then you start playing and you don't know what they mean by start playing. Do you mean uh, he starts masturbating or is it like he's doing something else? Elabiela means play guy or go ahead and play man. You're sitting alone at home and you don't want to be lazy, but the devil comes to your head and kind of basically incites you and then you start playing. It's a lot more on the macho side of things than, than the Bintil Giren song. To understand why these lyrics are so much more daring than your typical commercial pop song, we have to take a quick look at what most Egyptian pop sounds like. This is a huge music industry filled with superstar names like Nancy Agram or Amr Diab. This is his hit playing, Waya. Singers come to Egypt from all over the Arab world. They even sing with an Egyptian accent instead of their native accent, just to make it in this industry. Egypt for the last 20, 30 years leading up to the Arab Spring was full of this style of music that is, I mean, the easiest way to describe it is pop. Uh, Amri Dieb is the most emblematic singer in that style. And all of the songs were, were very light. The lyrics were all about love that anybody could listen to <laughs> that doesn't offend anyone. It was music that didn't, didn't push any boundaries. And in a way, what happened in 2011 in the uprising, people got sick of listening to these, to these pop songs that where everyone is happy and living this rosy dream. And once, once the revolution happened, people were kind of sick of that phoniness. And, and a lot of independent musicians that were singing about the political issues were coming out. And so for a long time, there, there, there were this independent music uh, and Maharaganat music for people who just want to party. So post-2011 uprising, we're talking about two kinds of music that became more popular. First more political music for people who want to hear about what's going on in their lives. And also Mahraganat, which was more of an emotional outlet and also just fun. And that created another issue for the pop industry. So the recording industry in Egypt was really kind of deteriorating on its own with the changing economics of the industry worldwide. Meanwhile, the Mahraganat world was coming from shanty towns with very little overhead. So a dinosaur is watching these young players come out of the, the shanty towns and you can't kill one or two because there are going to be a million of them and not knowing what to do about it. So so that 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 shift, I think, has caused a lot of anger among people who worked in the music industry, who were expecting things to go back to where they were before 2011. 
that led to the perfect storm that we've seen with the song Bint al because this was actually one of the first Mahraganat hit that was starting to trespass into the territory of love songs that appeal to the r- romantic common denominator. This was no longer a music that is of the periphery, that is daring, that is threatening, that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Here we're starting to get into the wedding territory and they will hire the singer to perform in all the big weddings. And wedding territory in Egypt is big business. The really big ones can be even more lucrative for the singers than concerts. And it's not unheard of to book pop stars for expensive weddings. And uh, with that, they will take over people like Amr Dieb, who, whose bread and butter was not recording anymore, was live performances. And I don't mean to be talking about Amr Dieb here, because Amr Dieb is just a representative of that music industry establishment that we're talking about. But with Amr Dieb come many other singers whose livelihood depends on pop songs that uh, top the charts. And, and, and they are seeing their popularity decline, and uh, that is just the reality of it. So lest anyone listening thinks that we are taking shots at Amr Diab, I take your point and I hear you saying that this isn't about him, he's just a reference point. So taking it back to today and the current scene, the reasoning that officials gave for the ban, the lyric that included alcohol and marijuana, Was that just the immediate trigger or was that an excuse for this ban? I don't think the hash and alcohol phrase in Bintil Geren was a good enough reason to stop a whole style of music from being performed live in a country as big as Egypt. There are many other songs that had content that would be considered a lot more threatening to the ethics of the conservative populace of Egypt. Uh, I believe this song uh, was a perfect storm using that excuse of hash and alcohol, along with the fact that it was triggering many people in the music industry establishment. It wasn't about that lyric itself, as Mina says. Mentioning marijuana and alcohol isn't that uncommon in movies or TV. It was about the fact that the genre was starting to get widespread recognition, even outside of Egypt. And Egypt's music industry was no longer the only hit maker. Here was this massive hit, as big as anything that came out of the commercial pop industry, without that commercial support. But that establishment backlash wasn't just economic. It also came out of a dislike for the music itself. Remember that official we mentioned who said, the music kitchen is now full of cockroaches. His name is Helmi Becker, also from the Musician Syndicate. I asked Mina to explain his insult a little more. I think, I think that expression is, is, is very problematic in many ways. It is not up to the music syndicate representatives to decide where the sound of Egyptian music goes. I mean, it's a very naive approach to think that uh, a musician in general, whether they're part of a musician syndicate or not, would be able to control the aesthetics of a population of 100 million people. So what's next for this genre? 
Well, it's complicated. In March of 2020, the musician syndicate lifted the ban, but it imposed a bunch of regulations instead. Musicians can get a license to perform their songs, but to get that license, they have to follow the syndicate's rules on public morality. They also have to perform for the syndicate's listening committee, which will decide if the performances are high enough quality. And then in November of 2021, the head of the music syndicate banned 19 Maharaganath musicians from performing, including one of the most famous artists, Hamobika. Later that month, Egypt's parliament granted the music syndicate, along with two others, judicial powers to crack down on the music genre. So while Mahraganad might not be banned outright, it could be death by a thousand cuts, at least for live performances. Still, it's hard to stop the music. This is Shams al-Magarra by Hamo Bika, Hassan Shakush, and Omar Kamal. It has more than 131 million views on YouTube alone. If we've learned anything from hip-hop, if we've learned anything from even rock and roll, that, you know, these attempts usually fail. I think uh, these musicians are doing something that is pushing the boundary, uh, both aesthetically and uh, socially in in their lyrics. So I think it will not be far-fetched to think in 10 years, we will look at some of these singers and say, you know, these are musical superheroes, like the originators of hip-hop that we look back on. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by me, Malika Bilal, Nay Alvarez, and Nagin Auliai, and originally produced by Alexandra Locke, Bedina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, Natalia Aldana, and Graylin Brashear. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. Special thanks to Teresa Katsarelos. If you want to listen to more Mahraganat, we've got a playlist on Spotify just for you. We'll post a link on our social accounts. We're at AJ the Take and I'm at MM Bilal. We'll be back. <laughs>